Let's get into the Word. If you have a Bible with you, um, I invite you to find Luke chapter 18. Gospel of Luke chapter 18. We'll be at the very beginning uh, of that chapter. As we go along in our study of the Gospel of Luke, learning about the kingdom of God, um, one thing that keeps coming up is that we're learning that our lives are supposed to be distinct. Like they should look different in many respects from other people. And as we go along Sunday by Sunday looking into the Gospel of Luke and thinking about the kingdom of God, really what's happening is that we're learning each week like about another difference that's supposed to be present in our lives if we've encountered Jesus Christ. How are we supposed to be distinct? How are we supposed to be different? Because we represent and even live in this kingdom of God. So that's what's been happening. What's going to happen today is that we're going to notice that, okay, here's another area, yet another area where we're to be distinct. And um, it's a difficult one. The area of we're looking into today is how do we handle the silence of God? How do we deal with a long return or a long delay in the return of Jesus? How do we deal with all the bad things happening in the world and God seems absent from it all? How do we deal with that in our soul, and how does that affect the practice of our faith? Because from a natural point of view, all those things that I've mentioned, those are all really ominous signs and things that are likely to lead people away from faith. But what will Jesus say about that, and how are we to live supernaturally by the Spirit in light of all of these realities That's what we're looking into today. Verses one through eight of Luke 18 um, address that area of our lives, which I think is super helpful because I need this. I struggle with all those things just like many of you do. And so um, let's see what Jesus has to teach us, shall we? Let's stand, if you're able, for the reading of the word, and then uh, we'll talk about it. Luke 18, verses one through eight. And he, that's... As Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, 
when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Lord, may you be honored here today. May the word be honored here today in our hearing. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, the passage is about prayer. It's about dealing with not seeing a return on our prayers. I think that there are some difficulties in understanding exactly what's going on in this passage. So as we were reading it, if you found yourself having a few questions about exactly what's being taught here about prayer, I think, in my view, that's pretty natural. I think that's understandable if we read through that and you think, boy, I've got a lot of questions about what's being taught here. One thing that I think will be helpful in our understanding is to realize that there are some underlying assumptions. And recognizing what those are will help us make sense of this passage, okay? So there are at least two, we'll just name two. Two underlying assumptions from this passage. Number, number one, the first underlying assumption is that we're praying. We are going to have a really hard time connecting with this passage if prayer is not a part of our life as a Christian. If it's not a huge part, like the underlying assumption is that prayer is a huge part of your life as a disciple of Jesus. Jesus, I mean, Jesus himself was often pulling away to pray. He was often teaching about prayer. Here in this passage, he's encouraging prayer. He was always modeling prayer. It's taken for granted here that Jesus' disciples will be praying. Now, it's really hard to preach on the topic of prayer without feeling like you're putting everyone in the room on a guilt trip. Because if you're like most disciples of Jesus, at least Western Protestants, prayer is often a struggle for you. Making time to pray. Focusing while you're praying. Not um, nodding off while you're praying. Maybe you have questions about how to pray or doubts about the efficacy of prayer. Like if it's actually achieving anything. So I just want to let you know right up, right up front, far from um, trying to put you on a guilt trip, I, w- I just want to point out to you the fact that, that the fact that we struggle to maintain and to persevere in prayer, the fact that we struggle to do that, that's the very reason that Jesus takes time to encourage us here in Luke 18. That's what verse 1 tells us. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Right? This passage is about encouragement, not condemnation. Jesus recognizes our need to be encouraged. He recognizes that we're prone to lose heart and just quit. 
So we'll talk more about that in a moment, what it, what it means to lose heart and why we do that. But the first underlying assumption here is that we're praying, okay? Second underlying assumption is that we're praying in the way that Jesus has taught us to pray. That's, that's assumed here in this teaching, that we're praying in the way that Jesus taught us to pray, right? Remember Luke 11. We've been somewhere in the gospel of Luke. We didn't just show up at Luke 18 with a segment on prayer. We've gone all the way through. Luke chapter 11, the disciples go to Jesus and say, teach us how to pray. And he teaches them. He gives them the Lord's prayer as a model for prayer. When you pray, say this. And it's an underlying assumption that we will be praying in the way that Jesus has taught us to pray. One of the things that can make this passage a little bit tricky is that at the beginning, when we read the beginning of the passage, right, when we see Jesus talking about prayer and telling us to keep praying and not lose heart, probably we have our own prayer list in mind we're probably, probably thinking about all the things going on in our lives that are requiring us to have persistence in prayer. Maybe praying for relief from a, a bodily ailment for a long time. Maybe praying for someone that we love to be healed and it's been a long time. Maybe praying that a relationship that's very important to us will be restored and it's taking a long time. We're thinking of all those things that we might be praying for at the beginning, and we're thinking, okay, he's telling me to keep praying and not lose heart. But then at the end, at the end of the passage, it becomes clear that Jesus has something pretty specific in mind. Right, verse seven, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So we might begin the passage with our own prayer list. Like, I really want help with these things. But then at the end, be a little caught off guard or confused because Jesus seems to be talking about God always answering prayers regarding justice for his people. And that's really specific, right? And that dynamic, that difference is one of the things that can make this passage really hard to understand. Like, what exactly is he, what kinds of prayers is he talking about here? That's why it's helpful to know that there's an underlying assumption here. The assumption is that not only are disciples of Jesus praying, but we're praying in the way that Jesus taught us to pray. We're praying for the things that he's taught us to pray for. What are those things? The Lord's Prayer, Luke 11. Remember, we're praying, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, please meet our basic needs like food and forgiveness. Deliver us from evil. See, those are all really kingdom-oriented prayers. Those are prayers of longing and petition for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness to earth. 
Now, it's not wrong to pray for other things. Like praying for those daily needs and for provision is part of what's modeled here also. It's just that in our everyday prayers, mine and yours, do they ever include any kind of an idea or any kind of expressed longing for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness? At all? Ever? But that's how Jesus taught us to pray. When we specifically asked him to teach us to pray. And it's assumed here in Luke 18 that the disciples are building on that knowledge that they received in Luke 11. So we shouldn't be caught off guard when we get to the end of the passage here and see Jesus talking about God finally giving justice to his people and vindication over their adversaries. It's assumed that we would be praying for those very things. But we Western Protestants, we are caught off guard when we come to the end. Because we typically don't pray for those things. Our prayers tend to be much more oriented to my kingdom come than thy kingdom come. We ask God for things that will further establish ourselves in this life. Like I I found myself doing this the other day while I was out for a, a jog and I congratulated myself because I thought, you know, I should pray. And then I started praying and then I condemned myself because I realized that all of my prayers were aimed toward bringing equilibrium to my life, to establish my own little kingdom with everything being okay. And Lord, would you just bring peace to my life and kind of smooth everything out for me? It was all about my kingdom. The kind of prayers that we pray reflect our tendency to think that when we become a Christian, we're inviting God into our world. That's not the paradigm. It never should have been that way. When we become a Christian, we enter into his kingdom, his world. He doesn't just come into ours. We move into his. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So I'm very guilty of this. What we want, what we really want, is for this passage to say that whatever we're asking God for, he's gonna give it to us speedily if we just pray long enough. That's what we want it to say, but that's not what's being taught. It's assumed that we're praying kingdom-oriented prayers, the establishment of God's rule on earth, the vindication of his people. And if we don't understand that, We won't understand the passage. It won't make any sense to us at all. We'll just be confused. Okay, so there's the underlying assumptions. And I think now we've done really about 50% of the work to figure out what's being taught here in understanding. It's also really, I think, our first point of application. Number one, are we praying? And number two, what kinds of prayers are we praying? Are we praying in the way that we've been taught? And if not, are we willing to change? 
Are we willing to be persistent in the face of maybe feeling like our prayers are not achieving anything? That's the next point that we want to make. Jesus acknowledges that it's possible that we might lose heart in praying these prayers. That's one possible response that we might have since the kingdom of God has not yet come in its fullness. And hey, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus left the planet. All this waiting, and one thing that could happen is that we could lose heart. And that would be a very natural thing to happen. We pray for Jesus to return, establish his kingdom, vindicate his people. We don't see anything happening. Seems like our prayers are met with indifference, uh, with silence. We begin to wonder, is anyone there listening at all? We might begin to doubt God's existence, doubt God's goodness. Life goes on as it always has, day after day. Nothing to indicate that our kingdom prayers are heard or are achieving anything. Meanwhile, it's not like we're just living in a neutral situation. Things just go from bad to worse. Evil multiplies, murders multiply, pain all over the place, all kinds of abuse, accidents, scandals, natural disasters, wars, corruption, slavery, deceit, church problems, relational problems. And of course, you start to wonder, where is God in all of this? And of course the world looks at the church and says, where is your God in all of this? Where is this promised kingdom? Why the delay? Why is evil so rampant? Why does God even allow his own people to be persecuted and killed? You may have heard of a man named Sam Harris. He's an American. He's an author. Um, He's also an atheist. He wrote a book about 15 years ago called Letter to a Christian Nation. It was, um, it was addressed at um, conservative Christians in America. So this is 2008, right? So quite a while ago. But I'd say the goal of his book was to um, put Christians in their place and kind of try to help bring us into the 21st century. And I remember reading his book, and it was just, it was just chilling to read his, um, his blunt statement aimed at praying Christians in saying something to the effect of, you keep pleading with this God, but you need to know there's no one there. You're talking to an imaginary friend. And it was the, I think it was the end of a chapter, so it was just punctuated. Is it any wonder then that Jesus speaks to his disciples about continuing to pray and not losing heart? You know, the very fact that God has prepared us for this dynamic in our lives, for this feeling of losing heart, is itself an indication of his presence and his care. He has made provision for this interim period 
while we lament our fallen world and pray for the kingdom to come. And that provision is in the form of this parable about this widow seeking justice from an unrighteous judge. The parable is in the form of some of the other parables that we've seen in the Gospel of Luke. We saw an example of this back in chapter 16 with um, the dishonest manager. We studied that a few weeks ago. What Jesus does is he, he holds up a really negative example of this really kind of horrible person. And this horrible person eventually does something meritorious, does something right, does something good. And then makes the point that if this unrighteous, ungodly person can eventually do the right thing, don't you know, don't you see how much more will God, the perfect one, do the right thing? So same thing, we've seen this pattern before where this unrighteous judge, even someone like this, even a scoundrel like this can finally do the right thing. So of course God will do the right thing. The point of the parable is this. Your persistence in prayer will not go unrewarded. Your persistence in prayer will not go unrewarded. In fact, more specifically, he wants us to know just how impossible and unthinkable it is that our prayers to God could go unrewarded. If an unrighteous judge who does not care about God, does not care about his fellow man, so like a complete lack of heart, complete lack of wisdom. Remember this woman's a widow. She's one of the most vulnerable in the whole community. If this extremely cold, uncaring judge eventually grants her request because of her persistence, it is impossible that God the righteous judge will not quickly grant justice. That's the example that he uses to establish our confidence that our prayers are heard and will be rewarded. And based on that confidence, we can keep praying. The judge who's listening to us is not this cold-hearted man. Our judge is also our father, the God who is love, the God who is just. He will do right. He will give his people justice at the right time. He is God. He holds these things in his hands. They are safe with him. And instead of losing heart, We should continue to bring him our laments and our petitions, knowing that he is good and that we are heard. And this, brothers and sisters, makes us distinct. No one else is doing that. All the evidence is to the contrary. And yet there's this distinct group who Jesus calls God's elect. 
that in the face of all of these things, in the seeming indifference of God, pray on. Confronted with God's silence during this period of delay, the natural thing for humanity to do is to call God into question and to start to say things like, God's not there, God's not good. That's the natural response, to call him into question in any number of different ways, that there must be something wrong with God. Jesus does something very interesting at at the very end of this section. He flips that question around. In this interim period, this period of delay, of waiting for the kingdom, the real question is not related to God in any way. Whether he's there, whether he's good, whether he's listening, the real question is, are there any humans, even among God's people, who will maintain faith in the good, just God in the face of delay and silence and evil? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith expressed through persistent prayer? Will there be anyone left with a faith in a good God who continues to pray? See, the real question is about us, not God. It's our character and our goodness that's up for grabs, not his. I think it's so good and so healthy to sit under the teaching of Jesus, to listen to what he's saying, because it it reorients us. It puts us back in our place. We are creatures. God is the creator. We are finite. He is infinite. Nothing about him is questionable. There's lots about us that's questionable. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reoriented to that. And so Jesus does that at the very end with his question. He flips it back upon us. So I put it to you. How will your prayers be changed based on what we have heard today? Will you pray different prayers as a result of listening to Jesus Christ? What will you be praying for? And when you're tempted to lose heart because of what you see happening around you and the apparent silence of God, will you remember this word of Christ? And will you have confidence in the character of the Father? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have entered your kingdom. We shouldn't want you to conform to our world. Lord, let us be conformed to yours. We ask you to press our hearts into a different mold. Let us love and seek justice. Let us raise up the vulnerable, the widows and the orphans. 
Let us feed and bind up the poor. Let us preach the good news of Jesus Christ to everything in creation. Let us picture and live out this kingdom of God while we wait and while we pray for the fullness of this beautiful kingdom to come in the person and reign of the Lord Jesus. And let us not lose heart. Thank you for your word that you gave us today for just that purpose, to encourage us to keep going. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.